Hey everyone, it's Jeff from Modern Combat and Survival Magazine, and I have a real treat for you in this week's broadcast. Now, as much as you hear so-called experts out there banter on about urban survival and what it's like to live in a collapsed environment, the reality is that those who know what it's really like are often our boots-on-the-ground soldiers who have lived and operated in parts of the world that lack infrastructure, are without rule of law, and local governing is in the hands of whatever militia is the most powerful or the most brutal. Now, it just so happens that this week I have a new expert in our network who makes his living protecting others in exactly these kinds of environments. And the insights and tricks of the trade that he's amassed in real-world life-or-death operations are about to give you a fast lesson in how you can avoid, evade, or work with whatever forces and rule following collapse. Now, this is a rare, no BS look at what it really takes to survive a real hot zone environment. And whether you're a soldier or a citizen, you're going to want to take notes. So check this out now. If bullets were flying, your adrenaline surging, would you hit your target? If the world as you know it crumbled tomorrow, collapsed into chaos, would you know how to survive? If you and those you loved were cornered by a gang, violently attacked, could you protect them? Could you protect them? Could you protect them? Tactical firearms training, urban survival, close quarters combat. This, this is another podcast to help you better prepare for any threat you may face in your role as a protector and a patriot. This is Modern Combat and Survival. In a hostile environment, there may be no such thing as forward or behind enemy lines. Everywhere is behind enemy lines. Hostile forces could be anywhere and everywhere. Anyone you meet could want to hurt you. Take what you have or worse. It's the ultimate hot zone landscape, one in which only you, your wits, and your weapons make it possible for you and those you protect to survive. Now, am I talking about a war-torn landscape overseas, or am I talking about our own city streets after a major emergency, terrorist attack, or other social collapse that leads to the evaporation of the services and infrastructure, the law and order that we foolishly take for granted. The fact is, it could be either. There are realistic parallels you can draw between a military combat zone and surviving in a post-collapse environment, even within our own borders. In fact, without rule of law, your town could quickly transform into something that more resembles a third world territory run by gangs, warlords, and militia groups than the Mayberry USA you were used to before everything crumbled around you. Now, whatever martial law, military, and political structure that's left could be doing their best to reimpose order, but you and your family could get lost in that shuffle, or worse, ground underfoot by the heavy-handed tactics employed by all those around you, unless you know how to read the lay of the land, live in the midst of unofficial area warlords, and learn how to play by the new rules to get things done and keep you and your family alive. So what can the hostile combat zones of today teach civilians, survivalists, and patriots about dealing with these groups following a collapse? Well, that's what we're here to find out. Hey, everyone, this is Jeff Anderson, editor for Modern Combat and Survival Magazine, with another podcast to help you better prepare in your role as a protector and a patriot. And my guest today is a full-time military contractor and trainer who's intimately familiar with what it takes to operate and survive in a hostile territory. man. Thanks a lot, Jeff, for having me. I, I really appreciate you taking time to, uh, to sit down and, and let me uh, let me uh, share some things with you and your viewers or your your listeners. Now, this is this is awesome. I mean, you you reached out because 
I, I think this is very indicative of the work that you've done and the, and what you've written about because your goal from the very first time you contacted me was, look, there's guys out there in hot zones that I can help. And that's why I'm really excited to have you on here. Now, listen, everyone, Nathan is a resource of a different sort when it comes to his expertise on high threat protection in hostile environments in the war zones that he operates in as a full-time military contractor. But it turned into a valuable life-or-death resource for other contractors and military to fast-track their tactical abilities and make it through to the next day. Nathan has the operational experience and training to back it up. Now, as a combat veteran of the U.S. Army and the former director, Nathan has over 12 years boots-on-the-ground experience working in various hot zones like Africa, Iraq, Afghanistan, Lebanon, and Central America. His wide range of tactical mastery, as well as his common sense approach in conducting realistic training, has made him a valuable resource and expert in high threat protection operations, consulting, and course development. It seems like the day-to-day living in a hostile environment, the kind that you're really used to really living in, could prove pretty challenging, I'm sure, at times. Now, when we're looking at surviving in a collapse-like environment, we have to recognize that no matter how prepared we might be, Every cache of supplies is eventually going to run out, and you have to be able to go out and be able to find supplies to sustain you and your family over a long-term emergency. So how does how does someone interact with the locals in a hostile environment if you need to, you know, beg, borrow, steal, buy, or, you know, we often talk, talk about bartering. When you need to do that in order to get supplies for long-term survival, how do you do that when you're existing in an environment that's constantly a threat to you and you never know who to trust? Jeff, that's a, that's a really good uh, question, a lot of good points that you bring up there. Uh, first, I'd like to say, as you've said in many of your, your previous podcasts, the most important thing I personally believe is to always plan, plan, plan ahead, um, stockpile, put things together so that you have them at hand. Um, the next thing I'd like to say is it's really important that you have to remember to respect the locals. I've been uh, operating in these environments for a long time, and I've worked with some really good operators and some others that I wouldn't want to operate with again. The good operators that I learned for, learned from always taught me respect people. You don't have to like them. You don't have to trust them, but respect them. By having that respect, it's going to be easier for you when they when they know you. If you go into a certain area, if you're operating in a certain area, a certain sector, um, once they know who you are, it's easier at a later date if you need something to go to them. And and they'll be more willing to possibly help you. Um, again, going back besides that point, it's just it's important to have as much as you can pre-positioned, pre-set up. Um, and, and again, at the end of the day, as you know, we, we, we've heard in other of your podcasts, it's important that when a situation like this happens, you can only count on yourself and you can only count on the team that you're operating with. But again, um, respect for the local population. Do the best that you possibly can when it comes to prepping and putting things together. And unfortunately, sometimes you're going to just have to, to go blind, run in the ground and try to figure it out as it comes. When you're talking about like things that you, from your, from your experience, kind of like having to live in an area, and a lot of times you might not necessarily have the resupply that you need. You know, I know from being in the military, you know, we always count on like, you know, chow hall and MREs and things like that. But you know, a lot of times when you're doing this contract work, I always wonder is like, are there any things that you think people don't know that they should be stockpiling or, 
you know, I, I think people kind of get the basics, but I always wonder if there's, if there's things that like you might see that end up becoming scarce when resupply is shut off or, you know, there, uh, if a city is truly in collapse or if its resources are really stretched, what are those, some of those things maybe that people don't think about that they should really consider stockpiling? I think one of the main things, you know, as human beings, we need water. And I think people a lot of times think, oh, just go to the tap. I can get it out of, out of the tap or a bottle of water. Um, I think one of the most important factors, and I carry one with me at all times, is a survival straw that allows me to filter out, basically take the straw, put it into a dirty river, you know, water that probably has all kinds of different bacteria on the inside of it, and I'm able to still survive using that. I also have water purification tablets that I carry with me uh, inside of my um, to-go bag, my bug-out bag, that's always with me. And then I also carry some smaller tablets with me inside of uh, a plastic bag that I keep inside of my, usually inside of one of my cargo pockets on the inside. Um, that's extremely, extremely important. The other thing that I personally do, um, I try to stock up on power bars, um, protein bars, um, high-energy foods that you can get a lot into a bag. And keep you going. Also, uh, trail mixes, nuts, raisins, um, anything that you can put together that you can you can sustain yourself off of until you can get to another location where you can resupply and refit. Those are the key factors right there. Yeah, and I think especially when you're looking at um, where you might have to get out of an area quickly, you know, people that are stockpiling, let's say, food, you know, you're stockpiling rice and flour and things like that. But if you need to go, that having stuff like those power bars and those uh, carbohydrate gels even, like for, you know, runners use or, or bicyclists use exactly. for long-term energy, like that kind of stuff, you can eat on the run. You can take it with you. It doesn't take up a lot of room or anything, and it's super high calorie, like with nuts and stuff like that. And, and the other thing I like, like you were talking about, like the survival straw, like that makes a lot of sense because – you might not know where you're going to be. You might have to, you quickly, I mean, you quickly get orders. I'm sure sometimes, hey, we've got a new detail over here. Grab your stuff. Let's go. And, you know, while somebody might be stockpiling water at home, if you're in, in an, an environment that now has changed the whole, you know, it's now it's changed to a high threat zone, you need to leave. You can only carry so much water with you. It gets to be pretty heavy. And so having something that's always on you, especially if it something happens quickly and you need to kind of get out of the area fast, you at least have something, especially if you have to get out of the area fast, because you could get dehydrated very quickly. But if you've got something that you can come up to a mucky puddle and use a straw for that gives you that rehydration that you need to keep going, like that that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Exactly. The other thing, too, that I also try to do is, is to get powders that have electrolytes on the inside of them. Mm. Uh, one or two of those, you can you can, uh, you can can also mix that into the, the water that you've purified. It's going to have a nasty taste to it. It's just kind of like back in the days in the military when you had to do water purification. If you ever, for example, went to the Jungle Warfare School that used to be run out of Panama. Yeah. You no, know, you would have to put in the, the, the tablets, put it inside of the, the water from the river, but they would always tell you, put in some Kool-Aid to kind of kill it. Well, you use the electrolyte powder because it kind of helps to, to kill the bad taste, but it also is putting electrolytes back into your system along with the carbohydrates that you have. It's going to keep you going and you're going to be able to keep moving and hopefully get out of that hot zone and into a location where you can you can find some, some sanctuary and some shelter. Yeah. Yeah, good points. Good points. You know, um, we talk a lot about intelligence and, and, you know, the ability to get that 
that lay of the land when you're assessing threats to me is, is really important to surviving in a hostile environment. Now, I know you touch on this in the book. So what are some specific strategies that someone can use to develop that sixth sense about the local threat environment so that they can assess what they should or shouldn't do when they're operating in that area? Again, another really, really, really good question. Um, there's a lot of things you can do, but as I touch base inside of my book, there's combat indicators or atmospherics, as we call them. And that's understanding um, what the people are doing. Example, if you, for those that have operated inside of Iraq, um, like 2006 to 2008, one of the things that you would notice when you were driving down the road is you would see uh, women, children, old men, on the sides of the road, playing, doing whatever. The times when you knew that something was up or just wasn't right was when there would be no kids and no women. Um, and you would only see usually young men or even older men on the side of the road. And then a lot of times, unfortunately, you hit by an IED, you hit by small arms fire, or a combination of both. So it's important when you're driving in your everyday you know, outings and so forth, pay attention to what you're seeing on the side of the road. If you're seeing people outside, you know, doing, cutting the grass, um, you know, working outside of a, of a store, just anything that looks to be normal, you're probably okay. When you don't start seeing those things anymore, then there's, there's some, some big issues and you need to, to readjust and how you're going to, you're going to be doing things. Um, another thing that I like to do when I become operational or I'm in an operational environment is I like to use a number of open source tools that help me better understand the area that I'm in. And the first point that I like to bring up, it's, it's a free, free aspect, and it's Google Earth. And using Google Earth, uh, it helps a lot. You're able to plan routes and identify choke points. You get a better insight into a specific target location or area that you're going to be operating on. Um, the only downfall, of course, of using Google Earth is you don't know when the satellite images have been uploaded and how old they are. So it's extremely important that when you're using this tool um, that you try to conduct after you've done your, your satellite overlay or satellite, satellite reconnaissance of the area, that you follow up and conduct a vehicle or foot assessment if you're able to. Now, sometimes, as you know, that's not going to be possible to do. Um, but if you're able to, you need to go in to ensure that what you've seen on the satellite images are going to be the same on the ground. And, again, it's important to realize that if, if you're not able to verify this, um, this really could have a catastrophic effect um, on your survival and how you're operating. Um, another tool that I really like to use um, is a tool called Echosec, um, and it can be found at echosec.net. That's um, E-C-H-O-S-E-C.net. And Echosec is a location-based search platform that provides public safety, security, um, journalists, and intelligence professionals um, actual knowledge that's based on social media and other information. So basically what it allows you to do is to find a location where you're operating at. You can either use a circle or a square around the target area, if you will. And what it does is it pulls up social media for you. And in today's day and age, social media is a very important, important thing. Um, it's important to understand what people are saying, what they're talking about. Um, the other aspect of, of EchoSec there's a paid version of it, which is a little bit more powerful tool. And what that allows you to do is you can actually track specific people. So if there's a specific account that is interesting or something pops up, 
you can go ahead and you can use um, um, the paid version, and it allows you then to monitor this individual. Why that's important is a, a real quick story. In uh, 2014, um, I was working um, I was working in Africa, and there was a specific we had gotten some information about possible threats taking place with uh, uh, Islamic groups. And we were able to use EchoSec and, and look in the area where we knew what we were going to be operating at. And lo and behold, we hit on an individual that was making direct threats to the organization that, that I was working for at the time. Um, and basically, we were able to determine that this individual was talking about using um, some type of explosive to cause damage. Um, when the principal was brought into the general location, uh, sure enough, there was a twin V-bed attack. Um, fortunately, the team was able to to get the principal out with no issues or problems. And part of the reason why was because of using EchoSec. We were able to adjust our posture, um, make some changes in how we were doing things. And um, later on, it, uh, the individual that was posting this stuff on Twitter uh, was actually picked up by local authorities. And um, everything that he had said came out later on because of this, this tool. Um, the last thing I'll say when it comes to a sixth sense, Jeff, I think every single one of us have has that little voice in the back of our head. The problem is most of us don't listen to it. Um, if you're in an, an area and you just get a bad feeling and you hear that little voice screaming at you, um, you need to 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 listen to it. Um, I had a former uh, first SFOD operator who once told me, I'd rather be a bit paranoid than a whole lot of dead. <laughs> and, and, and he's right. Yeah. You know, it, at the end of the day, uh, it's your survival. It's your family's survival. Um, it, it it doesn't do you any harm not to listen to it. Yeah, yeah. So many people think I, I, I they, in order to normalize a situation, we kind of just tell ourselves, "Oh, I'm sure nothing bad will happen. I'm sure it's just my imagination. I'm sure it's just my paranoia or whatever." So. Exactly. Yeah. Let me ask you, with like with Google Earth, what is it? What specific things would somebody be looking for when they, you know, they pull something up or they know an area that they want to go into, or maybe it's even getting a different perspective of your own area, right? Like, like where you live might be your base of operations, but a lot of people might not even really know from a bird's eye view what the landscape is like in their area. Um, what are some of the things that, that you sh- people should, you know, would search for on something like Google Earth? Well, again, you know, specifically, um, if we're talking about, you know, survival after a, 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 some type of, of catastrophic event, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's important to understand all the roads, secondary roads, primary roads. Um, the thing about Google Earth that's, that's pretty interesting is that you can you can set it up and make little waypoints. You can put little marks on the map itself, print it up so that you have it. Um, but again, it's important to understand, you know, the surroundings that you're operating in, uh, what can be expected. I mean, if you're worried about people coming in to, to possibly harm you, you know, it's important to know what high-speed avenues of approach that these people can come to, to, to get to you. Uh, and at the same time, you can you can look at these different roadways, secondary, primary, and try to adjust on, okay, if I have to go by foot, I'm going to go this way. If I have to go by vehicle, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take one of these routes. Uh, but again, it, it's, just, it's a very powerful tool, and, mm. and there's so many different things you can do with it. Uh, there's there's some uh, some applications out there that even allow you to put overlays on top of Google Earth, 
which is, again, depending on how high speed you want to get yeah. or how low speed, it just depends on what you need it for. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And, and um, the other thing you can see, which, you know, a lot of people, I think we take even like electrical lines for granted, you know, because a lot of the, like the major electrical lines that you might find, you know, you can find them on a topographical map and things like that, but where you see a, a wide swath of of clear cut, you know, forests or whatever that goes through because there's a, there's a, either a, a power line through there, a major power line or um, a railroad or something like that. You know, there's a lot of different avenues of exit, I think, that some people might not even realize that's there until you get that, that over top view of something. Or if you're looking at a topographical map or something like that, like that shows bike trails or hiking trails and stuff like that, that, you just you don't even know until you see it from a different perspective. Exactly, I think yeah. that's a uh, that's a good point that you're bringing up. And again, that's just important to understand the areas that you're operating. Plain yeah. And simple. Yeah. Well, we've been talking with Nate about dealing with gangs, militias, and military, and surviving in a post-collapse environment. We have a lot more coming up, including answering the question: Should I join a gang or a militia in a post-collapse environment? Uh, how to develop an intelligence network to be forewarned of danger in your area and prepare your escape or your defense. And finally, how to quickly get your survival team trained and ready to face a crisis few are even able to prepare for. All that and more coming up after this special message. In any disaster, crisis, or attack, your life and the life of those you love could solely rest on the survival gear you've acquired. Do you have the proper gear to protect you from the threats you'll face? Whether it's preparing your home against the destruction and mayhem of a city in chaos, or you're bugging out to a safer location when a natural disaster forces you from your home, the supplies you have right now could ensure your survival or seal your fate. Don't take the risk. Claim your free copy of our exclusive guide, Survival Gear Secrets, at survivalgearsecrets.com and discover the seven-phase survival gear plan every family must prepare for or face the consequences. Five no-bullshit warning signs that a collapse is headed your way, so you're already in action long before your neighbors even know what hit them. And how to know exactly when it's safer to stay at home and shelter in place. Or get in the family bug out mobile and get the hell out of Dodge. Your fellow citizens may be fine with sleeping in a crowded stadium waiting for FEMA to hand them a granola bar, juice box, and a blankie. But you know that no one can protect your family better than you can. If you're properly prepared with the right supplies and equipment to ensure your survival. Don't wait until it's too late. Find out what's missing from your survival gear plan by grabbing your free copy of Survival Gear Secrets now at www.survivalgearsecrets.com. And now, back to our show. Okay, we're back with Survival.com as he reveals the real-world lessons he's learned about dealing with gangs, warlords, and militias in his work as a professional contractor in some of the hottest war zones on the planet. And we have a lot more to get to, so let's go ahead and jump back in now. I know you've seen that in a power vacuum that's created when there's a, a lack of political power or authorities to keep law and order, other groups sometimes rise up to fill that vacuum and they can have their own sense of law and order and what they, what they put into place in that vacuum. Now, it only makes sense because as we always say, there's strength in numbers, right? And it's definitely more advantageous to be part of a group than it is to try and survive alone. 
Now, I'm sure you've seen the different group dynamics that can spring up in this kind of a scenario. So I'm, I'm curious, when assessing the various groups that I might align with after a collapse, how do I choose which one to join or go alone or whatever? You know, what do I look for as the pluses, the minuses, and how do I know that this group will help me survive? You know, Jeff, that's a, kind of a tough question to answer because you never know um, if somebody's gonna, if somebody is really truly gonna be there to help you, or they're gonna take advantage of you. Um, I prefer, if possible, if I was in a scenario like that, I would try to operate on my own as much as possible. If it came to the point, I would try to find other individuals uh, that maybe have the same background that I did, or maybe even ahead of time, if you were able to, um, you know, work with with different people. Maybe you you, you know them from 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 work or from social events or something of that nature, and you know that you have the same connection, the same kind of thoughts, same ideas, and same views, then it may be advantageous to, to try to join up with, with folks like that. But again, I think the, the most terrifying thing is, is not knowing who you're dealing with and then falling into a group, and maybe that group eventually does things that, that you know that you don't agree with. And then, of course, that is going to put you in a very precarious situation. You know, what do you do then? Do you stay with them because they're offering you some type of, of survival and shelter and help, or do you go on your own and then become haunted by this group? So again, I really think that it's important ahead of time if you have people in your family that you can stay with, um, other ex-military guys that you might know, people that you've worked with before, try to do that before joining or trying to, to join up with another group or another band of individuals. And at all possible, try to operate on your own. And trust yourself and trust others. So, I mean, when you're when you're doing contract work I and mean, you're already part of a team, I guess that really, I mean, that kind of lays the foundation for it right there. Like, it's best to kind of pre-plan this stuff rather than, okay, now you're in a collapse environment and, okay, hey neighbors, let's let's get together. You know, it's always better to have that team kind of laid out for you. When you um when you're in these different like areas that you're operating in. Um, you know, especially following war or towns that are that are that are ravaged by war and things like that, and you're seeing these these gangs. I mean, so when we hear about it over here, it's oftentimes like um, you know, almost like the African warlord sort of a thing. Like you're you're gonna join or else. And but I, I think that a lot of you probably see a lot of people just kind of lost in that shuffle, kind of stuck in between in these different areas. Do you think it's best sometimes for them to to join together, even with even if they're um, not part of a gang or anything? But do you find that that they're best set up as like networking among themselves, even to have you know maybe not to be that lone duck who can easily be um, you know a sitting duck for people that might take advantage of their power in that area? You know, I think one thing that's kind of important is. is um, and again, I mean no disrespect by saying this, but Americans were, were a special breed of people. Um, you can put people from all different backgrounds. Um, the military's prime example, you have somebody that comes from a rich family, someone comes from a poor family, someone from the South, someone from, from, from the West Coast, and they are able to work together. They're able to put aside their differences and they're able to move forward, accomplish the mission, and, and, and survive. And one of the things, unfortunately, that I've seen in a lot of the environments that I work in, I mean that 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 doesn't happen. I mean when you when you bring up issues of 
of people's religion or their race. Um, you know, the location where I work in right now, I mean, it's, it's, it's two religions fighting each other. Um, and then in addition, there's criminal elements that are, that are, you know, um, that are operational and doing things. And I don't think that, that some of the, the folks that I come into contact with have the same mentality and, and would be able to put aside their personal differences for the, for the greater good of, of trying to survive and help other people to survive. Um, in Africa, one of the things you say you, you do see quite a bit is those that are weak are the ones that are targeted. Um, you know, it's probably the same mentality as like in a, in a prison. Uh, the weak is pried upon by by the stronger groups inside of the inside of the, inside of the prison. Hmm. And that's the same here in Africa, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Well, unfortunately, sometimes disasters and even you know within our own borders don't bring out the best in people you know oftentimes it can bring out the worst it's sad but you know we see it over and over again people take advantage of when there's no accountability when there's no law and order there sometimes you know you the people change so it's interesting exactly. yeah you know i know as as a combat veteran you know how valuable intelligence is in in planning out your movements and and developing your strategies and the tactics to survive in that hostile environment. And unfortunately, these days, many people aren't even on a first-name basis with their neighbors, let alone the police or other authorities. Besides, you never know. Like we say, the, the worst sometimes comes out in people. And and sometimes that's even in like the media or political agendas or anything like that. And you never really know who you can trust or or what official reports or or media reports that you can trust. They all might have their own alternate agendas. So this all makes it super difficult to stay informed during a crisis. And with intelligence being as critical as it is, what are the best ways to develop maybe your own intelligence network to get a heads up on the evolving threats that are in your area and, and stuff that's happening really to kind of keep your finger on the pulse or anything? I mean, who, who and what do I look for and how do I create these contacts if I don't have any now? You know, one of the things that I describe inside of my book, and I've, I've used it to, to great effect in a number of, of operational tours that I've done, is, is creating Skype groups. And uh, of course, if if you know the situation has happened and there's no internet, then you're kind of you're SOL. But let's say that you still have access to the internet. Um, I created a number of, of different Skype groups, basically meeting people from different organizations, uh, other private security companies, um, other government contractors. And what you do is you create basically a, a network um, where you have one person that's in charge of, of like a group moderator. Um, if people join, you have to know who they are ahead of time. And basically what this group becomes then is anything that's going on or anything that's taking place or if there's an attack someplace, people get onto that network and start pushing out as much information as possible. Mm. Um, it's also a good aspect because in the fact um, we've had and some of the groups that I remember in, in Iraq, for example, um, people had specific questions. Hey, we're going to this location. Has anybody been in this location in the last six months? What can you tell me about? It? And people then would, you know, pipe up and say, I've, I've been there. I'll send you something offline or you know, give me a phone call and we'll, we'll go from there. So that's a really good tool. It's a free tool. It allows you to start building up a network of trusted resources. Um, again, the other thing, too, as we kind of discussed earlier on, um, is when I was talking about Ecotech, it's social media. I mean, in today's day and age, people get on, you know, social media on Facebook, Twitter, 
or Instagram, and they post questions or they post uh, statements and pictures. And a lot of times, you can get a lot of really good information from what these people have posted or what they've put up. I mean, if you don't know your next-door neighbors and they're, you know, big into social media, you can use one of these open sources to find out who they are and what they're about. Uh, another great way of, of doing stuff is, is good old-fashioned Google. Um, I'm sure many people have gone out there and Googled their names or Googled for information about a specific event or a specific uh, topic. Um, so those are open source um, aspects that you can use. Anything open source that you can use that can help you in your survival, um, I think that's very important. And again, it's just you, you have to be a little bit creative. You have to go out there, take a little bit of time, find sites, try to determine if the information that's being put out on these sites is, is good to go. Um, Another example, there's a there's a, a site called the Long War Journal, and uh, it's a, a think tank run by two individuals from the United States, and all they do is they track uh, terrorist attacks, um, issues that are dealing with international terrorism, mostly in Afghanistan and Iraq, sometimes in Somalia, uh, other places in Africa, but it's solid information they put out. They support it, so you can always go back and, and double check, and a lot of times they provide additional links where they've gotten their information from. Of course, that's on, on the level that, that I'm in the, in the environment that I work in. Mm-hmm. But the, I think the same thing can be done by by um, by your, your readers um, and your listeners, by them trying to identify, as I've already said, such different, you know, different sites where they can go to, to to get the information, to find out what's going on. And then again, the main thing is just atmosphere, understanding what's going on in your neighborhood. If you start seeing people that you haven't seen before, it could be an indicator that, that something could be, you know, about ready to take place. Um, just have to be very observant and pay attention to your surroundings and, and have an understanding of what's going on. Here's here's my question, though. Like, a lot of, there are some amazing digital tools out there, or internet-based or, you know, um, social media-based and things like that. And, you know, we always have to have like kind of that redundancy plan with, you know, well, what if you don't have the Internet? What if you don't have what if you don't even have power? You know, that sort of thing. And I always wonder because I've not operated in in, um, you know, like some of the environments that you've operated in. And I always I always kind of like wonder about the, you know, like Starsky and Hutch. I'm dating myself here. (laughs) I'm like really dating myself. But, you know, Starsky and Hutch had Huggy Bear, right? Like they were if they were looking for, okay. You know, I'm, I'm looking for a tip on somebody and so go pull out Huggy Bear and he would say, here's what's happening, you know? And I always wonder, like, what about the personal network? Like, what about the people that are involved with, um, you know, that, that, that would normally have their finger on the pulse? So, like, if you're in Africa and you go to a town or a village or something like that and, and it's new to you, you can get some intel off of, you know, Google, you can find your routes, you can do things like that, but who is it that you would go to? that you think really has their finger on the pulse that you think would be like, like who would you develop a, a relationship with if you were going to be in an area for a little while? Like who are those people that you think would be the best Intel sources that you would want to network with? Well, you know, on my level, I, I run into a lot of different uh, uh, government type people, um, different militaries that are operating in the area. And, and you know, it's, it's always advantageous for you to try to go in and talk to you know, just kind of create a relationship. Um, you know, I, I I've had great success in the areas that I've operated in by by establishing such relationships. 
Um, and by doing this, um, you can then, it's easier for you to go and say, hey, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm planning on going into this location. I know that you guys have operated there, you know, the last few weeks. What do you think about me going there? You know, can you give me any, you know, insight? Well, what do you think? And a lot of times, you know, if you've created that relationship with these different groups, um, it's going to be much easier for you to get the information back out. Uh, of course, just, you know, kind of that concept of give it forward. So, you know, if you can give it back to someone, karma, make sure that you do it. And again, um, establishing those relationships. Now, there's, you know, there's one problem though, when you gave the, like this, the point about Huggy Bear from Starts and Hug. Huggy Bear was an informant. He was getting paid. And you have to ask yourself, do you want to pay money out of your pocket to someone that you really don't know, that you don't trust, that may be setting you up? Um, that's, that's always a dangerous, dangerous thing. Mm. Um, and so, again, I, I would try to network as much as possible. Um, uh, some of the best information, you know, that I've been able to, to garnish, especially working right now where I'm at, is, is with the NGO, um, non-government organizations, uh, even some of, some of the, the missionary groups that are out there. They're going to these areas and they have a, a real keen idea of what's happening and what's going on. Um, Another aspect of, of folks that I've made friends with is uh, aviation people. Um, you know, never hurts to have a, a few a few cocktails or a few beers with people and ask them, "Hey, if you're flying into this area, can you you know kind of give me an oversight of what you saw? Was there any issues? Was there any problems? Or what do you think?" So, I, I, Jeff, I think those are the best way and try to keep it on kind of a, a more professional level than than you know trying to count on locals uh, that again you don't know. You can't vet them. You don't know what their background is, and you don't know if they they aim or they want to hurt you. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I, mean, I hadn't really thought of like the missionaries and and things like that who have who have true like altruistic type um, you know intent for being someplace. Like they don't necessarily you could probably trust them a little bit more. Maybe like Red Cross or you know Doctors Without Borders and things exactly. like that. Where exactly. yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's good. That's great. You know. Uh, Military units are a great example of teamwork. And I, and I know in your role, you've had to work with taking like green recruits, people who are maybe fresh on your team or just, just joining the organization that you're with and, and, you know, working with foreign forces and developing them into a highly effective team. You know, likewise in a collapse scenario, it, it can be best to be part of a team if you do it the right way. And we, we talked about that some, you know, we can, if if you've got a network of people that you know and trust and and you can pull together your various skills you can be much stronger and more self-reliant than if you're just trying to ramble your way through a crisis now with that being said not everyone out there is a former ranger or navy seal and and often they don't even have that mindset that it takes to survive in a crisis so what are some of the key elements that you've uncovered for quickly and efficiently getting a survival team skills up to speed both before and after you're going into a hostile environment? Jeff, um, really good points that you bring up there. And uh, the main point that I think I can, I can, I can give on this is always be respectful to what people bring to the team. Everybody that comes to your team, right? They may not be a Navy Shield, they may not be a former Delta Force operator, or or come from Marsog, but they have some knowledge, they have some background, they have some experience, or they probably won't be there in the first place. So you need to capitalize on people's um, people's strengths and also look at their weaknesses. 
you can always work on the weaknesses to ensure that, that they're not going to affect, you know, the team momentum and, and how things are being done. And I think it, it might be the same for your research, you know, um, um, and also your listeners. But I, I think, I think that's a, a real, real, real key point there, is, is accepting what people bring to the team and capitalizing on that to build a stronger team. I've, I've, I've worked with teams before where because you weren't an AV SEAL or because you weren't uh, from Marsog, you know, they treated you differently. And they, a lot of times it, it caused a lot of friction within the team. And you don't want that type of friction, especially when you're operating in a, a hostile or semi-permissive environment. You know, either, you know, overseas or unfortunately a possible collapse, but, you know, that, that could happen here in the United States. Mm-hmm. So work with people, um, learn from them. And, and be respectful. And I think by doing and remembering those key factors, everything else will, will eventually fall together, and then you can capitalize on that. Wow. So, so when you get a new, let's say you get a new person on your team, or you know, in 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 our survival experience, or some, you know, just from the standpoint of looking at it through that lens, it might be um, somebody that comes to your team either looking for help, and you just and you decide like, okay, yeah, let's let's find out what they can contribute to the team because you also don't want somebody to be a drain on your supplies and things like that. And all of a sudden you're taking care of a, of an entire village with, you know, three MREs between you. So what's the, have, have you found a way, like when somebody comes in new to your team or you're new on a team, um, is there a way to kind of find out what their skill set is? Um, you know, what their, what their strength is. Do you have like an evaluation process that you do to, to kind of pull it out. I mean, it's, you don't want to wait till a firefight happens in order to figure out what somebody, you know, what they contribute or, or what they, or what they don't contribute that you need to pick up on. Um, I, I understand your point. I think though that in, for most of, of individuals that come from the same background that I, I do and are still operating in these environments, um, you know that those people already have the skills and the training they need. But one yeah. of the things is when a new person gets to your team, you know, it's always that process of watching them and seeing, you know, what is this person doing? I mean, are they doing the right things? Are they walking, you know, the proper formation principle? How do they handle their weapons? You know, um, are they a know-it-all? I mean, different little factors mm-hmm. like that. I mean, you know, kind of help you to realize if this person is, is going to be okay or if it's not going to be okay. And I mean, if they're not, they're eventually going to think themselves, you know, People on the team just don't want to work with them. And I've, unfortunately, I've seen that happen a couple of times. Hmm. Um, but again, um, putting it into, putting it into a, a scenario of, of, in the United States, something critically wrong going, I'm not sure how you would be able to, to do that. You know, I'm not positively sure how, how you could, Set something up to, to determine if somebody's going to be a strength or a weakness. Mm. You know, I guess you have to decide um, if you want to help support this person, even though they have some weak points, and hopefully you're going to find the strong points, and maybe they're salvageable and we'll be able to get them up to the speed or where you want them to. Um, you know, these are all questions that you're going to have to ask yourself as a, as a leader. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it may, I like what you have to say. I mean, basically watching them, I think the more experience you have, then you know, you know, when somebody new comes to the team, if they don't have the experience, if they are really green, it seems like, you know, you were talking about looking at the baseline of, 
of the of the area that you're live that you're in, right? Like what the people are like in the area and things like that. So when you know the baseline, you know if there's if there's a blip in the matrix, right? Like you you can kind of sense that. I guess when when you're looking at like your level of experience and the team that you have that that's working together, if somebody new comes in, it probably makes it pre- pretty evident what they what they know and what they don't know. Sure, but you know one other thing I just just came to mind thinking about this now is uh-huh. you can actually you know assign them to do something. You can ask them to put together the you know for my current team right now we have a, we have a morning brief that covers intelligence locations that we're going to be operating in, just kind of like a laundry list of what's going to happen today. And you know you can always assign a new guy and tell them this is what needs to be covered, and then see you know see how they do. See if they're really going to take that extra time to, to look into things, or they're going to just kind of sugarcoat it. And say yeah. everything's fine. You know, we're going to do this. Nothing. So, I mean, that could be a that could be a way of doing it too. Yeah. Give them a little bit of responsibility and see how, um, and and responsibility in a way where, you know, you have some time without putting yourself or your team into you know a bad situation. Yeah. Um, but that might be a way of a possible way of doing it. That makes so a that, lot that, of sense. That's that's one of the, the the best things you know is is being able to be creative. As I've said before, you got to be creative in any line of work or you know in the survival environment. You know you have to be creative. You know if something breaks, you might have to fix it. So how are you going to fix it? Are you going to sit there and like oh well, there's no stores that I can go get the pieces, or are you going to try to jury rig something up and five fifty cord and hundred miles? Away? <laughs> that's right. You know. So again, I think all of this you need to be creative. You need to be flexible. And, and and go from there. And I really really do feel that you'll be able to make proper assessments, uh, or at least get you to the to that next point where you need to be at. Yeah, yeah. Good point. Good point. Man, I mean, I really, I mean, I always look for these opportunities to really dig into somebody's experience, especially when you're when it's when it's current experience and it's based upon real real world stuff rather than just you know fantasy stuff. So I really appreciate you taking the time for us today and and knocking this out some really good takeaways that you can apply to wherever you're operating, whatever mission that you're on. But even for civilians, if you're in, in, we were talking about collapse-like environments, a lot of those conditions really can be the same as a third world nation. When you're, when you're looking at the, the systems around you, that infrastructure crumbling, these are things that really can be of use for you. So I always look for these opportunities to, to get another person's perspective of what they're they're really doing in a real world environment. So, and, uh, and his training, you can go check it out at his website, www.com. And until our next Modern Combat Inspired broadcast, this is Jeff Anderson saying train hard, stay safe, prepare now. been Modern Combat and Survival. Survival. We hope you've enjoyed the show. You can help us out by rating our podcast on iTunes and leaving a comment. You can check us out on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Modern Combat and Survival. And don't forget to claim your free subscription to Modern Combat and Survival magazine at www.moderncombatandsurvival.com. Lock and load. And we'll see you next time. This has been Modern Combat and Survival.